I'd like to address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great and, as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Barnum Museum has a unique treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to millions of ordinary people, as well as royalty and high society. These letters offer a unique glimpse into the life of P.T. Barnum as a husband, father, mentor, and entrepreneur. Join us as we travel back in time and learn about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum through his own words. If you enjoy this episode, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast to help our rankings and support the Barnum Museum. And now, on with the show my character and peculiarities so correctly portrayed. Having recently discovered that a bundle of Barnum's February 1846 letters in the copybook appear after his letters written in March, the situation suggested going back to look at several of our storylines to see if they could be updated with new information. Given the amount of newly found content, this review could take some time but will be worth it. The skipped February letters, a total of 35 dating from the first of the month to the 21st, do answer a number of our questions and reveal more about General Tom Thumb's tour in Scotland as well as Barnum's plan for their return to the London scene. They also provide additional insight on Barnum's angst and anxieties, such as his concern about the new play for General Tom Thumb. A couple of letters offer helpful documentation about the anatomical Venus Barnum had commissioned for his American Museum, and one of the letters, on a completely new topic, is entertaining. So, let's begin. Barnum's agent in Paris was a Mr. Ouet. Letters to Mr. Ouet have appeared over a period of several months, but with their simple salutations like, Friend Ouet, it was hard to figure out exactly what their relationship was until now. Within a letter of instructions Barnum sent to the proprietors of a shipping company on February 1st, we have confirmation of Uwe's role as Barnum's agent. That same day, Barnum wrote Uwe from Arbroath, Scotland, with directives to complete the payment and finalize the shipping arrangements for the anatomical Venus that he had commissioned. This particular letter provides more information about the Venus's origins than we had gleaned from Barnum's letter to Fortis Hitchcock, in which he was more concerned about giving advice on the proper presentation and advertising of the Mademoiselle, as he called the life-size wax figure. Barnum told Huey that he had just heard from the model maker in Paris and learned that his Venus was now, or very soon to be, completed by February 4th. Barnum thus directed Huey, I wish you, therefore, to get a proper person to examine it, and if it is finished according to agreement, then I wish Monsieur Ainet to pack it in the very best manner for which he is to be paid according to the treaty which you hold. Barnum had agreed to pay 2,500 francs and was thrilled at this discounted price. When he first investigated the possibility of having a Venus made in Paris, he reported to Hitchcock that the model maker's usual fee was 4,500 francs. 
Monsieur Guy Aini's Waxworks was located at number 4 Rue de l'École de Médecine, Road of the School of Medicine, in Paris. Of note, Aini's location was in close proximity to the studio, or what would soon become the studio, of anatomical model maker Monsieur Pierre Vasseur at number 9. However, it is not clear whether Aini's and Vasseur's studios existed at the same time, nor whether they were strictly competitors. Vasseur established his waxworks in the mid-19th century, but as an exact date is not known, it could have been slightly later than Aini's. Vasseur's son-in-law, Gustave Tramont, joined the firm in the late 1870s, and the studio, called Vasseur Tramont, became well-known for the quality of their work. Unfortunately, trying to learn about Guy Aini's reputation has been more challenging. Since Aini knew how best to pack the Venus to prepare for shipment, he was to receive an additional 75 francs, or thereabouts, for that service, which Ue was to pay and charged a Barnum's account. Barnum had also decided to purchase an additional item, a wax model of a human fetus that was larger than the one made for the Venus he was purchasing. Barnum advised Ue on the matter, noting, The Venus contains a fetus some two months old, but I wish you also to buy from Monsieur Aini another fetus, which he has much larger, so that it can be seen in the same apartment with the Venus, but not belonging to the Venus. The extra fetus, I suppose, will cost 60 to 100 francs. Whatever it is, please pay for it and charge me. Have it packed in the same box with Venus. Barnum also wrote to Messrs. Draper and Company, with whom he had done business before, having them ship the items he purchased in France to America. He advised them, The bearer of this letter is my friend and agent, Monsieur Ouet of Rue de Montabour 24. He will see to the anatomical wax figure for me, and if he says that it is properly finished, I authorize you to pay over the 2,500 francs to the maker, Monsieur Aini, according to your receipt to that effect which Monsieur Aini holds, and will give up to you on your paying him the amount. I then wish you to ship the case to New York, and direct it to Dr. Tuttle, care of F. Hitchcock, American Museum, New York, and send the bill of lading to Mr. Hitchcock. It should be shipped with the utmost care, for a slight knock would ruin the whole of it. Ship as soon as possible. Eighteen days later, Barnum wrote again to Messrs. Draper, mainly concerning another business issue. But again he stressed the imperative that his Venus be shipped with the greatest care. As if this needed further explanation, he added, If Mademoiselle should happen to get her nose broken or her eye gouged out on her passage across the Atlantic, she would be received with no favor by our New York bucks. It is hard to imagine how such a delicate and complex item as the wax figure, with its equally delicate components, could make it across the Atlantic in a sailing vessel without sustaining damage, especially during a winter crossing. Barnum was clearly concerned about this risk, but we do know that if any damage did occur in transit, it did not ruin the whole of it, for the American Museum was advertising the Anatomical Venus exhibition in the New York Tribune by May 18, 1846, and for at least two years after. On a different subject, you may recall that Barnum had penned an uncharacteristically short and seemingly brusque note to his friend and agent Mr. Brittell in London. Weeks had passed, and he still had not received the second act of Albert Smith's new play for General Tom Thumb. His note of February 21st remarked, It is really too bad that the General does not get the new play. It will be many pounds out of our pocket if he don't learn it before arriving in London. The plan had been for Smith to get his manuscript to Brattell, who would print it up and send it to Barnum while the tour of Scotland was in progress. 
This would give young Charles Stratton the opportunity to learn his lines before the entourage's return to London, where the play would open. Barnum was quite frustrated that they had only received a portion of the play, and his note to Brittell almost implied that he might have failed to print it or to send it. But in this bundle of February letters, we find one written to Albert Smith on the 4th that clarifies where the fault lay, and it was not with Brittell. Barnum was frank in his letter to Smith. We have never received the whole of Act First yet of Hop o' My Thumb. Mr. Brittell writes me, January 31st, that he has only just received the balance of Act First from you. The General will open for the last time in London on the 5th or the 10th of March, and I want very much to have him up in the piece before we arrive in London. He is perfect in all that we have yet received. I hope you will push the thing ahead as fast as possible. I shall be in London myself in about three weeks from today. Please employ the proper person to arrange the music. Of course, you will be so good as to arrange with him about the price, as I have no disposition to be shaved. We shall be glad to get the property man of Drury Lane Theatre, Mr. Blameyer, to make the properties, but he cannot do so till he takes the measure of the general after we arrive. Please bear in mind the Yankee motto, Go ahead, and much oblige. Perhaps to keep Smith in good humor and encourage his prompt attention to the matter, Barnum added the cheerful postscript, The general begs you to remember that he is a brick. He is very proud of your compliment. He sends his little love. He is really first-rate. And now, for a little entertainment, let's enjoy a letter Barnum sent to one Mr. John Boyd, Esquire, of Aberdeen. The letter was written on February 8th, the last day of the entourage's stay in that city. Apparently, both Barnum and his young protege, and perhaps others in the group, had been to see Mr. Boyd, a noted phrenologist. Phrenology is a pseudoscience that studies the bumps and depressions on the human head, and based on their size, shape, and location, the phrenologist determines the character and mental capacity of the individual. Having a reading done by a phrenologist was a popular pastime in the 19th century, especially in America. Barnum's letter to Boyd begins, I have read your written estimate of character of General Tom Thumb, and have great pleasure in stating that it is wonderfully correct in every particular, so far as my knowledge extends, and I have been with him continually since his first introduction to the public more than three years since. As it turns out, Barnum not only got his own estimate of character from Mr. Boyd of Aberdeen, but reveals that he had many others done before, to which Boyd's conclusions compared favorably. He told Boyd, I am also constrained to add that although my own head has been repeatedly examined by the Misters Fowler of New York and several other phrenologists at various places and periods, I never before heard my character and peculiarities so correctly portrayed and explained as they have been by you, to whom I was a total stranger. He closes his letter with a line we have not seen used in any other of his letters. I have the honor to remain with sentiments of the highest respect and esteem this suggests that he took Boyd's estimates of character seriously. Lorenzo N. and Orson Squire Fowler, the Misters Fowler to whom Barnum refers, had their office at 131 Nassau Street in New York, near the American Museum, and they were very well known in their day. The two brothers, as well as Lorenzo's wife, Lydia Folger Fowler, one of the first female doctors in America, gave lectures around the country and taught the science of phrenology. The Fowlers are credited with greatly expanding the popularity of phrenology. Even so, one of the brothers, Orson, is today more often remembered for advocating the benefits of building octagonally shaped homes, which he promoted in two books. 
Many men who were far more famous than Barnum in the 1840s had their cranial bumps red, so he was certainly not alone in his curiosity about phrenology and willingness to believe a good reading. Interestingly, the American Museum advertisements of this period, the mid-1840s, regularly advertise a Madame Rockwell fortune teller, though Barnum was probably not taking her predictions as seriously as Boyd's estimate of his character. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you want to support us, consider subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a review. It really helps us out. Now, let's dive into the next segment. Names and Illusions It's a thrill when a little historical detective work pays off, and just recently we've had the good fortune to find the identity of the Mr. Miller with whom P.T. Barnum corresponded in the winter of 1846. Like magic, this information opened the door to another storyline, Barnum's connections with illusionists. Since Miller is a common surname, the chances of discovering the identity of Barnum's correspondent seemed low. But as it turns out, there were valuable clues in Barnum's letters of February 1st and March 7th, 1846. Miller was located in Glasgow, was in some way connected to a theater, and Barnum had hired him as an agent to keep tabs on the family with two exceptionally large boys, the fat children whom he proposed sending to America costumed as Scottish Highland brothers. Barnum had directed Miller to have a large advertising banner painted, to be mounted outside the American Museum, and that he teach the boys to perform a mesmeric trick so they could also entertain audiences. Putting those bits together with a few new clues discovered among the out-of-sequence letters furthered the quest and has led to a better understanding of Barnum's network. But before we get to Mr. Miller's story, a few words about names and identities, which form a sub-theme here. It has been surprising to learn from several of Barnum's letters that he did not know the full names of men with whom he was conducting business. Surely people had the equivalent of modern business cards to share, calling cards. But perhaps these only used the person's title and surname without their given name. It seems odd that someone as business-oriented as Barnum would not have asked a man's full name upon engaging in business, and likewise in the case of the lawyers who tracked him down after the accident in the Airdrie Theater. In several cases, this oversight caused wasted time and aggravation because Barnum was unable to obtain postal orders, money orders, and have them sent to people whom he needed to pay. The post office refused to make them out with only a surname. This was also the case with Miller, whom Barnum had directed to give money, as needed, to the mother of the Fat Brothers, a modest sum Barnum was providing to support the family until they sailed for America in April. Barnum's workaround to the predicament was to have a postal order made out to his secretary and advertiser, a Mr. Sheffield, who was in Glasgow at the time, and could thus get the money to Miller. As Barnum told Miller in a postscript to his February 4th letter, I have just sent to the post office, and they will not give me the order, because I could not give the whole of your Christian name. I was obliged, therefore, to get the order in the name of our secretary, Mr. Sheffield. So when he comes, he will take it and hand you the three pounds. Alas, Barnum was not certain of Sheffield's first name either, but thought it might be Thomas, so he had the order made out that way. He wrote to Sheffield, I send enclosed a post office order which I wish you to get cashed and hand the three pounds to Mr. Miller. 
I am not sure of your name, but you must sign it Thomas Sheffield, no middle name, as that is the name I have given. Ironically, Sheffield might not have even been the man's real last name, for in Barnum's March 8th letter to Fortis Hitchcock, he responded to information from Hitchcock by putting Sheffield's name in quotes. Thank you and Titus for your hints about our advertiser, Sheffield. I thought as much. No more is said, so Mr. Sheffield's story and true identity remain a mystery. Then there was the four-page contract Barnum was preparing for the mother of the Scottish Highland boys to sign. Barnum had written a first draft and sent it to Miller to review and add the necessary legal language at the end. That necessary language would state what would happen in the unfortunate circumstance of either or both of the boys becoming ill, incapacitated, or even dying during their U.S. tour. There is a good deal to be learned from the contract. We've already discovered that Barnum would be paying for all the expenses of the family, not only travel, lodging, and board, but also for their laundry. The contract also tells us that should a tour outside of New York necessitate leaving the toddler siblings behind, he would pay for the child's care while the mother was on the road with the older boys and her baby. Interestingly, it states that under the direction of Barnum's agent, the mother was to keep said children, crossed out, infant boys properly washed, cleaned, fed, and clothed, and in fact shall do all in her power to render their exhibition neat, clean, and respectable. Although it might not have been rare at that time to state a standard of hygiene, this inclusion implies that the family was not accustomed to regular bathing and having clean clothes, due to their impoverished circumstances. Barnum, therefore, wanted to ensure he had a respectable exhibit given his investment in costumes, advertising banners, newspaper ads, and of course the transatlantic crossing and commitment to a year's salary and expenses. This was not to be street-quality entertainment in the way the boys had been exhibited by their mother. Rather, it was to be worthy of admission to a museum or hall. Beyond those details, and getting back to our names discussion, we also learned from the contract that the boys' names were not really Alexander and Charles Stewart at all. These were stage names Barnum created for them. Barnum seemed uncertain even of the mother's name, referring to her in some portions of the contract as Mary Oscroft, and in others as Mary Osgood. He did realize that she was widowed, but he did not know her late husband's name, and he wondered about the boys' names being Philip and Michael Cusack. Were they from a previous marriage? He left the sentence defining her relationship to them incomplete, and the names of the younger child and baby are not mentioned at all, despite the fact that they would receive benefits under the terms of the contract. However, Barnum generously directed Miller to make any alterations or additions which she, the mother, may desire, if they are just, and return the draft to him, whereupon he would have the contract prepared by a lawyer. So who was the Mr. Miller of Glasgow? It turns out he was David Prince Miller, born in 1809 and died in 1873, a man with quite an interesting life story who wrote about his struggles and achievements. His book is titled The Life of a Showman, and was first published in 1849 with several subsequent editions. At the time Barnum was corresponding with Miller, he was the owner of the Adelphi Theatre in Glasgow. He was born in England, but grew up in difficult circumstances, and by 1825 he was on the road performing illusions or magic. He arrived in Glasgow in 1839, and was very successful in shows at the Glasgow Fair and at other locations as part of a traveling show. He worked hard, 
and scrimped to save enough money to build a theater in Glasgow. The first was the Sampareil in 1842, which held 1,200 people, and then he built the Adelphi, which was unusually large with a capacity of 2,500. It catered to the working class and poorer people. He may have had a hard time keeping his businesses afloat because one of Barnum's letters to Miller politely declines to consistently lend him 50 pounds, as much as he held Miller in the highest regard and thought him perfectly trustworthy. I would trust you with untold gold. Undoubtedly, Barnum realized he and Miller had much in common. They were just a year apart in age, and both had entered the school of hard knocks in their youth and been forced to make a living starting in their early teens. Sheer grit and perseverance took them further than most people could have imagined. Arguably, Miller had faced many more difficulties than Barnum, and he never became wealthy. Despite setbacks, both young men had been determined to climb the rungs to success, and Miller had done well to build his own theater. He sold his Adelphi Theater in 1848, two years after his work with Barnum, and it was fortunate that he did because just a few months after that sale, the theater burned. When Miller was in his early 30s, performing illusions at the Glasgow fairs, a rival by the name of John Henry Anderson, 1814 to 1874, was also performing at the fair at the same time. Anderson was a native Scotsman, five years younger than Miller, and he had been orphaned at age 10. By the age of 16, he joined a traveling dramatic company, and the following year he began his career in magic. At age 23, he performed at the castle of Lord Panmure, William Ramsay Maul, a Scottish landowner and politician, and received his endorsement, which encouraged him to start his own traveling company. This was all in the time period when he and Miller were performing at the Glasgow fairs. Apparently, Miller did better financially than Anderson at the fair, despite Anderson's heavy promotion and the endorsement he received, and maybe that led to an unfriendly relationship. Anderson disbanded his group by 1840, went to London, and opened the New Strand Theater. Two years later, he married a woman from Aberdeen, which may explain his return to Scotland, where he opened the City Theater in Glasgow in 1845. That theater became a rival to David Prince Miller's Adelphi. The investment proved catastrophic, however, as Anderson's theater burned just four months later. Whether Barnum ever saw Anderson perform, we don't know, but a letter indicates that he met him in Aberdeen in early 1846. Anderson went back to London at some point that year, and then went on to tour in Germany, Sweden, and Russia. Barnum was surely aware of Anderson's extensive self-promotion and advertising, and of his moniker, the Great Wizard of the North. But perhaps he had also heard some less enchanting details of Anderson's personal reputation from Miller or others in Glasgow. For whatever reason, it appears that Barnum did not like Anderson, and had no qualms about scheming to diminish his reputation and potential financial success on an American tour. All this is background to understanding Barnum's February 6th letter to Friend Phil, the Mr. Fillingham in London to whom he wrote a lengthy epistle on November 19, 1845, asking him to serve as his agent. Barnum's purpose in writing was to ask Phil to mail the letter he had enclosed, written to an unnamed theater owner or director in London concerning an engagement with General Tom Thumb. But the majority of the letter to Fillingham is devoted to revealing a scheme that Barnum hoped Fillingham would be on board with. That portion of the letter begins, 
The Wizard of the North has just told me that he goes to New York 1st of July next. Barnum's plan was to get out in front of Anderson's American tour and undermine him by sending another very proficient illusionist there first, thus making Anderson's gig seem old hat or imitative when he arrived later in the summer. Barnum told Fillingham, If Monsieur Philippe, now playing at the Strand Theater, is first-rate and has got a dashing apparatus, I would like to have him sail to America 1st of April or before, and come out there as the Great Wizard of the South, and perform all of Anderson's tricks before he arrives. I could puff him there in papers two or three months in New York. He could start off and go through the United States ahead of Anderson, and make a capital thing of it. And when Anderson arrived, all the public would say he was an imitator of Monsieur Philippe. So if you aren't a student of illusionist history, you may wonder who was this Monsieur Philippe. If you guessed that his name was not actually Philippe, that's a good start, since false identities seems to be one of the sub-themes of this episode. He was born Jacques-Noël Talon in 1802 near Nîmes, France. According to a biographical entry in Magicpedia, Talon was trained as a confectioner in Paris, then went to Scotland and continued his trade, but turned to performing magic tricks to supplement his income. The source of that information about his early background was Jean-Eugène Robert-Houdin, known as the father of modern magic, whom Barnum knew from his time in Paris. Apparently, Talon learned various tricks from Chinese jugglers, such as making a bowl with goldfish appear from a shawl, and creating the illusion of solid rings passing through one another and then linking solidly, forming chains and various configurations. These have since become classic illusions. Among the reasons Monsieur Philippe's show would have been desirable to Barnum was that his costume was quite distinctive, reminiscent of medieval sorcerers who wore a tall conical hat and long garb. Any advertising imagery of him in costume would certainly be eye-catching. But as Barnum had not seen Monsieur Philippe perform, he deputized Fillingham to attend a performance and judge whether the magician had potential for an American tour. I would like you to see him perform, and if he is tip-top, I would hire him to play in my museum for two or three months and give him such a start in all the newspapers throughout the Union that no other man could get, and he could coin lots of money in America in a couple of years. Barnum admitted, however, I could not stand a very high figure for him in my museum, but still I could do well by him and give him a start in America that would be worth thousands to him. He requested that Fillingham get a copy of the Tom Thumb booklet printed by Mr. Brittell and give it to Monsieur Philippe. The book contains a picture of my museum. This, he thought, might serve as an enticement to come to America. Barnum suggested another devious move to Fillingham, one that seems blatantly dishonest even by the standards of that day. He wrote, We could get facsimiles of all of Anderson's cuts and bills, and when Anderson arrived, all the public would say that he was an imitator of Monsieur Philippe. It is curious that Barnum suggested outright plagiarism of Anderson's advertising when he was capable of putting out his own puffs, but such practices must have been common enough, and since he would not himself be present in New York to see to promotion, perhaps that tipped the scale toward the deceit. Barnum, as we know, was extremely competitive, but resorting to this level? It does appear that Barnum really did not like Anderson, and that playing to Monsieur Philippe, who was unknown to him, was in some way getting even with Anderson. In summary, Barnum told Fillingham, Please see Monsieur Philippe perform, and then if you think it worthwhile, show him this letter. 
Taking a look at newspapers from 1845, 1846, and 1847 could be a way to find out whether Monsieur Philippe actually went to America, and it would be particularly interesting to see if he had performed at the American Museum in 1846, according to Barnum's plan. While that does not seem to be the case, a newspaper ad in the November 5, 1845 issue of the New York Herald reveals Monsieur Philippe had performed in New York City, but apparently Barnum was not aware of that when writing to Fillingham in early 1846. In the 1845 ad, Monsieur Philippe was named as an assistant to Miss Mary St. Clair in a performance at Palmo's Opera House on Chambers Street and was referred to as the French Necromancer. No other ads from that year came up in the search. However, in 1846 newspapers, there were several ads that show Monsieur Philippe did indeed leave England on or possibly before April 1, 1846 to go to America, but he did not perform in New York City. The celebrated French magician was performing at Caruzzi's Saloon in Washington, D.C. This time he was the star of the show, not an assistant. An ad dated April 11, 1846, announces a soiree mystérieuse of grand scientific illusions beginning April 13th, and which was to be only three evenings, Monday through Wednesday at 8 p.m. The illusions featured various surprising experiments in chemistry, pneumatics, optics, natural philosophy, and magic. In addition, a band of music was to be in attendance. Admission was 50 cents, half price for children under 10. That's twice the price of admission to Barnum's Museum. Unsurprisingly, the shows did not end on Wednesday, as the ad stated, but continued on for another three evenings, Thursday to Saturday, April 16th to 18th. This was a promotional trick to incentivize attendance in the early part of the week. The ads for the April performances appear in newspapers serving Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Maryland, and Alexandria, Virginia, the only reference to Monsieur Philippe in a New York newspaper was buried in a long column of Latest Intelligence by the Mails from Washington, which was printed in the New York Herald on April 21, 1846. Among the gleanings of the week, as they were titled, is a paragraph about amusements in Washington. Listed in the recent entertainments were Howe's Circus with Dan Rice and equestrian Marie McCart, a splendid grand opening ball in the New Hall of the Odd Fellows, the Conjurations of Monsieur Philippe at Caruzzi's, and the Debates in Congress. From this research, albeit limited, we are inclined to think that Barnum's scheme to bring the magician to America did not work out, at least not in this time frame, and possibly never. Perhaps, unbeknownst to Barnum, Monsieur Philippe already had a contract in place with Caruzzi. Unfortunately for Barnum, who was also seeking attractions for his newly acquired Peel's Museum in Baltimore, he missed out on having Monsieur Philippe perform there and in New York, and clearly the ploy to undermine Anderson didn't amount to anything. Whether Barnum ultimately felt Anderson bested him, we'll have to leave to the imagination. Thank you for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. Support for this episode is provided by the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum and based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinnock and narration is by William Saris. 
Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our COO. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and visit our YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Connect with us on social media and let us know what you think. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures with P.T. Barnum.